All right. Well, I want to make sure. First of all, is it uh, Tafoya, just like it looks? Tafoya. Okay, cool. And one thing I was definitely curious about is your the title of your Toby Hooper book. Yes, uh, Cinemophagy. Perfect. That's exactly how I've been wanting to say it in my mind. Oh, yeah. Cinemophagy. I love it. Cinemophagy. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's every young writer um, needs to at some point embrace their inner Shakespeare and make up words. Um, so that was, uh, I figured it was the first book, so you might as well go big. But I am... Uh, you're you're certainly not the first people um, to uh, to ask me how to pronounce it because every podcast appearance I did when that book was new, they were like, "How the fuck do you pronounce this word you made up?" <laughs> <laughs> well, good. You can join the the people we've talked to who have coined their own terms. We talked with Matt Singer about legacy quills. Oh, sure, of course. And uh, and then Nathan Raven about uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Of course, yes. That's my my, my dear friend Nathan. I love Nathan. Cinemophagy will be next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Unwatchables. I'm Mark Dattavio, and today we're joined by Scout Tafoya, author, film critic, filmmaker, and creator of the longest-running video essay series on the web. He's here to discuss a film that's often blamed for single-handedly ending the 70s new Hollywood era of auteur-driven filmmaking. It was declared an unwatchable disaster practically before it even premiered and lost its studio so much money that it also gets blamed for the end of United Artists as an independent studio. That film is Michael Camino's 1980 three-and-a-half-hour Western drama, Heaven's Gate. So, first... Uh, I want to extend Seth's regrets for having to bow out of this episode due to matters beyond his control. Seth watches all of these movies on VHS, and he became tangled up in the tape in an unfortunate rewinding accident. But uh, he is safe and recovering at home now. But we are in able hands with the great Scout Tafoya. Uh, He has written for The Village Voice, Film Comment, Nylon Magazine, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and more as well as created the long-running video essay series, The Unloved, for RogerEvert.com. You can find more of his video essays and features on his Patreon. He's also directed over 25 feature films and is the author of the book, Cinemophagy on the Psychedelic Classical Form of Toby Hooper. But that is not all. He also has a new book out now about the work of John Ford, which with the uh, beautiful title, but God made him a poet watching John Ford in the 21st century. Uh, So Scout, I'm frankly, I'm impressed you even had time to join us today (laughs) with everything you do. Yeah, no, that's um, basically since high school. uh, And like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've had friends for at least that long, but that was everybody's uh, constant refrain is like, uh, how, how, how do you, how do you get all this done? And I guess the answer is that, you know, it's, I, I've never slept well. Um, and for a very long time, it was extremely easy to just miss out on, uh, you know, the, the, the fun things in life to just sit at home and fucking write or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I have to just not question it at this point because the minute I start to think about why it is that I'm able to get so much done, I think the, you know, train will fall off the the rails there. So I just got to keep, keep at it. I also have a country music album out, which is fun. <laughs> 
All right. I was going to ask if I missed yeah, anything. I have, a, I have a metal project I do, and I have this kind of post-punk country project that I do. And the thing about the the Ford project was kind of realizing that there may have been something to say um, and or fun to be had coming up with things to say um, about Ford's movies. My friend Willa McClay is a great, great uh, 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 critic living in Newfoundland. She reached out to me, geez, two years ago, I want to say, um, and was uh, basically like, have you ever written about John Ford? And I realized I basically hadn't. And so I, you know, hearing from Willow that uh, it would be an interesting challenge to do that, I was like, yeah, it would. So I, I started at the beginning, not realizing the task I was setting for myself because he has 146 credited directorial uh, efforts, but a lot of them are missing. Most of the stuff that he shot between 1914 and 1929 are gone. Um, or anyway, a huge sum of them. Um, a lot of those movies are missing and we'll probably never see them again, at least not, you know. But anyway, um, so I started writing and it was a lot of fun because you realize that everybody's written about the searchers and everybody's written about she wore a yellow ribbon and everybody's written about uh, how the West was won or whatever. So it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit because you're not going to do better than Andrew Saris or Joe McBride or any of the people who have like really tackled this stuff or Kent Jones or any of the other great auteurs film critics. And so it sort of frees you up to, to just sort of have fun with, you know, you discovering this artifact as if in the wild and treating it not like a canonical title or whatever, but as something that you're, you know, liaising with for the first time. And um, it, it, it just kind of really went quickly. There were, there were very few Ford films that I found myself at a loss to write about. And the ones that were were movies that I already sort of had a relationship to. But uh, yeah, so it was uh, extremely organic. It took me a very long time, of course. It took me, you know, the better part of a year and a, and a half to really get it all ready to go. But uh, it was a great experience. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled that it's out there now that people can get their hands on it. And of course, we got the great Tony Stella to do the cover art, which is uh, just astonishing. I have my um, publisher, John Nix, to thank for that. Publisher, editor, uh, John uh, reached out to Tony and just, Tony just, nailed it it's just incredible yeah if uh if anyone's just listening right now if you go to our youtube channel to look at the video uh he was just held up the book and it really is a beautiful cover or you know go ahead and google it or buy it <laughs> or yeah <laughs> sure, exactly google it to buy it of course there you go absolutely and uh yeah it absolutely is a massive undertaking especially with somebody like john ford and i think you were kind of saying that it feels like lately it's a little it's a little less fashionable. Uh, people don't talk as much about John Ford. I, I feel like as Howard Hawks or Billy Wilder or a lot of these classic Hollywood directors, there's been criticism about, you know, the American Indians being portrayed in his films, some of which is fair and some of which I think people would be surprised to see in other movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, depictions of them with more depth as well as, you know, he's so associated with John Wayne, who is another actor who people don't tend to get as excited about as, you know, Humphrey Bogart or Jimmy Stewart or any of those people. It's, yeah, it was, it, you know, that's untangling all of that was pretty fascinating. Joe McBride um, writing about Ford really gave Ford the benefit of the doubt in just about every way politically along the way. You know, he, 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 he can't quite make as much sense of stuff like the friendship with Richard Nixon or the sort of red bashing later in his career, except as responses to situations that Ford was put in by the American government. Because Ford was friends with a lot of communists because he didn't, you know, that's the, there's a famous story my dad used to tell me when I was a kid where Zero Mostel was, um, he was blacklisted and afterwards he was working on a play in uh, Manhattan. There was an actor in the cast who had named names, and they said, "Oh my God, Zero, aren't you upset? Don't you want to not work with this person?" And he said, "We of the left have no blacklist." Um, 
And that sort of always stayed with me. And I think that Ford was kind of the same way that Ford really only had enemies a couple of minutes at a time. You know, he didn't like producers because they fucked up his movies. They didn't like financiers because they wouldn't let him have the sets that he wanted. He didn't like the English when they were fighting the Irish. But he found reasons to work with everybody because ultimately he was a poet before he was a warrior or a revolutionary or anything like that. You know, the content of a lot of his movies can be quite radical. That's um, Neil Bahadur, who's a a great writer, talked about how Ford was uh, to the left of most of us today. And it's tempting to believe that that's true and that in his heart Ford believed those things, but also Ford worked in a dominant American uh, uh, medium, which is to say filmed Westerns. Yeah, and that does make Heaven's Gate a perfect choice here because this is right down that lineage of Westerns with a, you know, that's coming from a very different time. Uh, you can see how it reflects other Westerns that were coming out around the time or what some people might have called anti-Westerns or neo-Westerns. And you can see little germs of that in John Ford's uh, work, I think, because like you said, it's all it's all part of this this continuum and this history. And I was especially surprised when I was filling in some kind of John Ford gaps that I have some slightly lesser known films like uh, Ford Apache or especially uh, Two Road Together, which is like this dark this like dark flip side of the searchers, which really blew me away. That movie is like Ford's spaghetti western. That is one of his ugliest movies. Um, you know, people talk about that that scene where Widmark and Stewart are in the river ad libbing as this kind of moment of of levity and all that stuff. That is an ugly movie. That is a that is a tough sit. I found myself repulsed by that film. It's practically a horror movie by the climax. It's- truly, truly, <laughs> absolutely, it is. I completely agree. And even the happier parts of the happy ending are are themselves sort of stomach turning. Absolutely, and it's it's particularly interesting to see how you know directors who were making films since the infancy of the medium were reacting to say you know the way that the film scene had changed by the. The 50s, 60s, 70s, especially, which brings us to Heaven's Gate. Um, I, I know, like someone like John Houston, I'm always really interested in about how he has these, you know, these these classics going back into a completely different era of filmmaking, and how he was able to still make some movies that I think are classics, you know, in the 70s that fit right in with this whole new Hollywood era, and that's where we're coming to uh, with Michael Camino. So I, I want to dive into him a little bit in general because. Um, he, for anyone listening who doesn't know, he really, his second film, The Deer Hunter, was such a big success in 1978. And the commercial success, it swept the Oscars, best picture, director, editing, supporting actor, sound. And I don't, it sounds like Heaven's Gate was a little bit of his blank check movie, his kind of cashing in and, you know, going whole hog on it. It was, yeah. So he was a commercial director for many years lied about a lot of details in his life to make it seem like he was just starting out, basically. But he had been around for a long time. But when he got to Hollywood in the early 70s, the first thing that he wanted to make was a film about the Johnson County Wars, um, which wound up being Heaven's Gate. But the first thing he made was um, this great buddy film called um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And the early 70s was a banner time for mismatched buddy movies. You have things like Irvin Kirshner's Spies and Richard Rush's Freebie and the Bean and uh, Peter Himes' Busting and things like this. It was, you know, take two handsome guys, put them in a, in a situation and see what happens. It was It was how you got a lot of iconic performances out of actors that maybe couldn't quite, you know, be sold as leading men in other situations. So it's a long film. It's this kind of it's got this stately look to it, which must have seemed a little strange at the time where it doesn't look like a movie like California Split or The Hot Rock. It's it's 
a lot of beautiful wides of the countryside and all that. Um, Eastwood was so impressed with Chimino that he basically said, come work for my company. You can do whatever you want. And even that wasn't a tantalizing enough offer for Chimino. He said, no, I need my independence. I need my freedom. And that's just <laughs> the idea that it, the 70s were such you know, high times that Michael Cimino thought he was going to get a better offer than Clint Eastwood saying, come work for me. You can have whatever you want. I always, that just blows my mind. But of course, because you look, I mean, you know, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was a post-Godfather movie and you see what that afforded Coppola. You know, he was able to make the conversation, which became this huge Palm Door winner and, you know, kind of caused celebrity in the same way. And it afforded him the, 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 the right to make Godfather 2 even more personal and strange and pushed, you know, this much further as an aesthetic experiment. Um, you know, and, and people like Scorsese, who kept getting second chances when the little things wouldn't work and the documentaries led to him working for Corman and the Corman movie didn't do well and... Cassavetes is like, well, this sucks. So, so what are you going to do? You know, everybody really felt a little, you know, walking on water. You know, everyone thought that the next thing they did was going to be the next big thing. You know, there's all these famous stories about people like Milius and Lucas and, and Spielberg trading points for their movies, because that's how cavalier they were about their own success and their own money. Um, and weirdly, I mean, you know, and, and it was all meted out, you know, it was, every, every gamble they made about their own success pretty much always turned out to be true with a couple of exceptions, you know, Apocalypse Now was a sort of a fiasco, but at least it was taken seriously. Uh, you know, Conan the Barbarian was a huge hit and, you know, 1941 was, was a huge flop, but he followed it up with Raiders of the Lost Ark and saved his career and he's never had a, 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 a threat to his dominance at the box office since. So Deer Hunter was kind of an outlier in those things because he knew those guys, but he wasn't of them. Jimino was sort of a little more of an outsider because he had this grand, you know, classical modernist approach that he was going for. And it was so huge that you could not see the top of it. And it must have seemed nuts to everybody until it won all that, you know, all those awards and made millions and millions of dollars. And so then... They say to him, what do you want to do? And so that at that point, nobody is prepared to say no to him because he is, you know, he is the golden boy. He just won every, everything that you get that people, you know, tell you, you need to do to prove that you're a success. He had it. I think it became clear to people that a Chimino's behavior on set was what they thought of as erratic. He was being a little domineering. He was being, you know, kind of aggressive to people. And I think that the more that those stories flooded back to the people at United Artists and all the other studio interests who had a hand in the pot, the more they were like, well, this can't go on because if we keep letting him do this, then he's just going to, you know, he's going to think that he's better than all of us and we'll have to keep paying whatever. So I think that was that there was then a concerted effort to leak the budget, leak the spending overruns, leak the terrible behavior to make it seem like this guy had lost his mind. Because if you have an artist who is more important than a studio, then what is the point of a studio? It really feels like this was just completely set up to fail and was never given a a chance. And so much of the narrative was created by critics and reviews at the time who seemed to have this like personal vendetta against the movie and against the idea that uh, Chimino was going, you know, how dare he, he do all this and all of these delays and this ambition and actually labeling it, like you said, as one of the worst movies ever made, which I think I can't, I've only seen the version that's currently available that was reconstructed, but which I just saw for the first time. So May you know maybe I could give some of them the benefit of the doubt that they were talking about this truncated version that I haven't seen, but I can't imagine anybody watching any version of this movie and lumping it in with something that's a total disaster, except maybe financially. But like you said, in the end, it's almost like they just learned all the wrong lessons from it. That you get 
a few movies that have giant budgets by these uh, ambitious directors with singular visions. And they think that that is the problem and we need to stop giving them resources for that. But every time, you know, a big soulless, uh, you know, studio made film bombs, the lesson somehow isn't, oh, well, we can't make any of these anymore. You know, they just move on to do the next thing. And it's not like studio heads know any more than a great director does about what's going to be successful or not. There's just so many myths and legends around this movie that started during the production that were being reported on and that persist to this day. So I, I want to talk a little bit about those and maybe setting the record straight about certain things about it. But I also want to talk about just how this movie actually plays, you know, today, a little bit removed from that context. Mm -hmm. um, but for for anybody listening, just as far as the numbers go, it started with a budget of about like 11 and a million half or uh, yeah, 11 and a half million dollars. It ballooned up to like 44 million, which depending what sources you look at, I've seen numbers that adjusted for inflation. That's somewhere anywhere between like 120 to 160 million today, yeah. roughly, roughly. And uh, it was, it was, you know, did have delays uh, basically from the moment that they started. And you got all these stories about Chimino. Like I, I read about him, you know, rebuilding an entire street to make it wider or uh, building an irrigation system under a battlefield to keep the grass green. Mm -hmm. uh, and that it went on for so long. I also heard that William or uh, John Hurt went away to filmed the elephant man, like during production from start to finish, <laughs> there, there was so much downtime in, be in between this. And, uh, there's things I definitely want to talk about. There's accusations of animal cruelty that that uh, happen on the set, which is another thing that kind of puts this in the unwatchable territory. Because um, you know we don't always just talk about movies that you know flopped or have a bad reputation. I think that there is something intimidating about actually sitting down with this movie now because of the length, because there is some pretty disturbing violence, uh, sexual assault, the animal cruelty, um, and honestly, this is just as bleak as bleak westerns get uh, as far as i'm concerned like there's no little speck of hope <laughs> anywhere in this movie it's kind of brutal um so i guess you know do you think that any of that put people off or puts people off uh you know today i mean i remember ha having it described to me you know when i was a teenager first kind of getting into movies and stuff um uh you know that it's like the saddest movie ever made that it's the most like hopeless thing ever i was like well, that's kind of, you know, tantalizing in its way, you know, when you're in high school and you're obsessed with movies and certainly the, the route that I took where, yeah, I loved classic movies and, you know, His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story and blah, 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 blah. But I also really loved depressing horror. You know what I mean? I loved zombie movies. That's my production company is called Honor Zombie Films because that was my first love. Uh, Dawn of the Dead from around the same time, The Death of New Hollywood is probably my favorite movie. But, uh, you know, the, the, the animal cruelty stuff, I absolutely understand it. Um, you know, I, I have friends who can't watch that kind of a thing. And certainly, you know, when you've put yourself through the cannibal holocausts of the world, yeah, it's extremely difficult. I mean, that's not a, an experience I want to have again anytime soon. You know, I don't like the idea of things suffering, you know, least of all for art, but at the same time, it, like, you know, it, you think about, uh, Andre Rubelyev, you know, the great Tarkovsky film, his second movie, and one of the most amazing works of film art ever committed to, you know it like it it's just a calculus you have to make as a film mm -hmm. person it just is you know i know that 
Sure, the rules of the game has that long hunting scene. Absolutely true. Uh, hard, yeah. you know, hard to watch, but again, you know, and here it's a cockfight is the first thing that we see where I'm like, this does not look fake. Yeah. And uh, there allegedly it was not, but I don't, I don't necessarily know totally how true that is or not. Easy to fake that stuff, kind of, sort of. You know, there's obviously like the great Monty Hellman movie Cockfighter has a lot of that stuff as well. It's just, you know, again, with the Ford thing, not to say that the sentence, it was a different time, is a get-out-of-jail-free card, but there was no moral authority in Hollywood. There was nobody telling you not to do these things because nobody really had any sense, you know, except from fringe groups at the time, that this was perhaps a fucked-up thing to show people. You know, that's that we, we have ultimately this movie to thank for the Humane Society intervening on film sets to make sure that horses aren't getting tripped in the inhumane way. Not that there's really a humane way to trip a horse, but... Right. You know, and it's why w with the introduction of CGI animals, and I remember the first time I saw those, um, I'm trying to remember if it was that Rennie Harlan Exorcist movie or The Ring 2 with all the CGI deer. But I remember thinking, like, this sucks. This doesn't look the same. <laughs> like, fuck this. You can't get a real deer. And then realizing, like, oh, it's because they don't want to, like, you know, whatever. You don't want to have to deal with an actual animal and or wind up killing it or whatever because that's what happened on Luck which was just a horrible tragedy because that show was so good and they killed so many horses. Yeah, horses did not come out well of this this movie either. Apparently, at least four were killed and one allegedly blown up with dynamite, which uh, apparently is on screen. Uh, yeah, I buy that. <laughs> I, I think I think you can pick, I can call that image to mind. Surprised people weren't killed, honestly, with some of the stuff we see. Uh, yeah, it seemed like this. that was a near miss. I mean, there's footage that, you know, that you can find of, you know, stunts that they're doing and people are falling off of, like, horse carriages with the whole carriage right like inches in front of the camera and like how the hell did you not die there and i think that they were just as surprised as anybody and that's the thing is that it's you know there there just was not care taken in the way that there is now and even still we fuck it up i mean there was that horrifying thing with helena hutchins is a great amazing talented photographer career just started and you've got some fucking people on the set who just don't give a shit and that's what happens and they put a loaded gun in an actor's hand um, you know, and that's a cavalierness that I think comes from people doing this for too long and also believing all the horrible things about how a movie is nothing if it doesn't make money. And so, you know, why wouldn't you just fuck around and, you know, just like do things the way that you're supposed to? And I think that, you know, again, feeding into somebody's, you know, messiah complex doesn't help them take more care with people's lives on set or safety or anything. And, you know, who, who, who does anyone have to blame for the creation of these myths except the same people who deflate them the minute they don't like the direction that it's going? You know, this is all a closed circuit system. It's the people watch the movie, it makes a shitload of money, the critics love it, it wins awards, and it comes back around and it's like, well, we don't really like this guy anymore. So no money, no awards, people don't go to see it, people don't like it. It's like, you know, you, you all did this. You gave yourselves this problem. And as somebody who doesn't really like the deer hunter, I always found it fascinating that that movie is still held up as this kind of great whatever, you know, inches from supposedly the greatest fiasco of all time. And I just, you know, I don't, I, I, I just don't understand the the whims of of you know people, especially then. You know, why is it that Woody Allen was able to have the career that he had for as long as he did, making the same movie every year, taking very few risks, you know, and then something that seems genuinely like it is grasping at something, you know, huge, at, 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 you know, something mammoth, something Viscontian, something, you know, in its way, Joycean, you know, like how, how, how are we to reward a genuine attempt to bring new things, images and words and ideas and sounds to the cinema if, you know, ultimately all we're answering 
for is the amount of money that it makes and the kinds of reviews it gets, as opposed to just sort of treating the thing as a thing. We just have always had an incredibly unhealthy relationship to this. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that everything that happened on the set of Heaven's Gate was justified because a great work of art resulted. That's nonsense. Nobody's life is more important than, or sorry, no work of art is more important than anybody's life. That was, that would <laughs> We'll bad. use that pull quote uh, <laughs> to promote this episode. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Yes, exactly. Nobody's nobody's life is more important than the work of art. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and you know, we're on the same page too about the Deer Hunter, which is not I'm really not a movie I'm crazy about. And uh but it was definitely anointed that way at the time. And it's interesting to think that if this if Heaven's Gate had gone a different way, that maybe we would have heard more of Michael Camino. Like you don't hear him mention alongside Scorsese and Coppola and Spielberg and Altman and you know all these these new Hollywood directors who were out there at the time and it's kind of seems unfair too that even though the movie did bomb and we can talk about exactly how that happened you know it wasn't just this movie that you know Scorsese had New York New York that everyone at the time hated and Coppola did one from the heart and Friedkin did Sorcerer even 1941 by Spielberg which you know he recovered from perfectly fine uh but it's it wasn't just this one movie that tanked everything and i think that there as soon as studio had started to see that oh sometimes we lost we lost money and it wasn't because of a decision that i made that they started to close in on everything and take over exactly yeah no it's very true it was it was part of a movement and the thing too again it was pushback it was pushback from the idea of you know you go back to you know Truffaut and Godard and Rivette and uh, Chabrol and, and and every other critic were writing for Coyote Cinema coming up with the idea because they loved what were perceived as trashy American movies. They loved Westerns. They loved Hitchcock films. They loved Howard Hawks. They loved, uh, you know, Andre de Toth. So finding greatness among uh, amongst product, right? That was what the whole point of the auteur theory was. There were a million uh, studio productions that were not supposed to have any artistic value so the French get a hold of American films after the war, and they find them so much more interesting than the French movies being made in country. Um, part of that is certainly a cultural self-loathing because of the way that, you know, France, you know, the French government and the artistic, you know, and cultural authorities behaved during the war. Um, and some of it is also, as always, just sort of trying to throw off, you know, the, 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 the shadow of your masters, of the people who came before you and trying to make something else. Andrew Saris and a couple other American critics get a hold of this stuff. And Molly Haskell, who was working for the French Film Office, um, uh, who became his wife, they get a hold of this and they bring it over and it helps them sort through, you know, what had been this kind of glut of very same you know, very similar homogenized uh, American studio project. Then you get uh, uh, Scorsese and Spielberg and blah, blah, blah. Those are all guys who had studied really hard at that, which was not uh, something that had been done before. It was a new phenomenon to find directors who were as well-versed in the movies that they had seen as the critics who were writing about them. And those guys then become the most powerful forces in Hollywood. Spielberg, you know, invents the blockbuster and, and Coppola sort of, you know, remakes American art movies in his own image as these kind of secondhand genre things. And then uh, when those guys get to be too powerful, money men everywhere start to sweat, you know, because if people are more looking forward to the director's name above the title than they are anything else, then you're fucked because you have to do what they say. You have to then follow them to whatever they want to do. So they were more than happy to feed into the narrative that these guys had all lost their minds, you know, and Chimino took it harder probably than anybody else because Chimino was one of the only people who had to genuinely struggle to keep finding work. And every movie they put out was met with roughly the same response. Um, there were a couple of people who um, kind of stood up for these things. I want to say 
Jonathan Rosenbaum, but I could be mistaken, um, was one of the people who kind of stood by Chimino during this period. I know Richard Brody in The New Yorker, though at that time he wasn't writing for The New Yorker, loved all of Chimino's movies. And, and you know, it was it was very difficult to find people who weren't treating them just as what they were marketed as and what they had to be made as, which was disposable product. You're the Dragon, The Sicilian, his remake of The Desperate Hours, and The Sun Chaser, they all got terrible reviews. You know, they were just kind of like, Here's another thing. There were a handful of people, I think, who who really stood by them. It was a rare thing to be able to look past the reputation, which grew crazier by the day, because every st- second away from Heaven's Gate that Michael Cimino, you know, lived, he had to live under the in- in- increasingly oppressive cloak of people's opinion of him, and it was all because he had lost his studio money, you know. So that that weighed on him more than it did somebody like Coppola. Coppola, who, you know, kind of wisely started investing in other things because he knew that his artistic reputation was not going to keep him in 35 millimeter film, you know, started the winery. So he could keep doing that. He, he took assignments that he didn't want so that he could keep making things. He, t- he made, you know, kind of down market you know, genre, whether it was rom-com or horror, because, you know, that stuff sold. And it kept him, you know, it kept him in, 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 good, uh, in good financial standing for as long as it took him to make the winery and then really make all of his money. It's why he's able to make a, a megalopolis today. Um, Scorsese kind of did the same thing. It was very much a one for them, one for me culture, you know? Yeah. And I think the comparisons just w- wouldn't help him either, because I think it's really fascinating to compare this with, especially Apocalypse Now, right? Because they have this, the way that it was covered in the press, the way it was delayed, the way that it was seen as possibly this big debacle that was going to ruin everything uh, as far as, uh, you know, mainstream or um, auteur-driven filmmaking. And really, even though I'm sure Apocalypse Now didn't, uh, you know, wasn't like a huge hit or anything, it's it didn't take too long, I think, for people to start almost universally accepting it as one of the greatest films ever made. And we can see uh, 2001 a space odyssey maybe could you could put in that same category and i i think that maybe what if i'm just trying to put myself into the place of people who did see this movie and give it a chance at the time and in good faith and maybe were still underwhelmed the best thing i can think of is that something this long with this scope and scale kind of demands to be seen you know practically as a a monumental statement and masterpiece, you know, about the, about the America and about human nature and everything. And I I could see maybe people feeling like, you know, by this point, we've already had McCabe and Mrs. Miller and once upon a time in the West. Um, It has a thematically, it's very much in that kind of vein and, you know, the, the wild bunch approach to violence and gore and, without being quite as idiosyncratic as those movies or having quite as indelible of characters, it kind of makes me think of when Kubrick uh, finally put out Full Metal Jacket. And I think a lot of people were thinking, all right, you know, he's a great filmmaker, lots of great stuff in here. But, you know, we've already had Platoon and Apocalypse Now and even The Deer Hunter. And is there that much left to really say? And maybe just the fact that the movie ended up being very good as opposed to a cinema altering piece of work. Maybe you disagree with that. That's kind of how I saw it. It's like, wow, this is actually really good. A flawed film, an imperfect film, um, but there's is really awe-inspiring stuff in there. So I mean, is that how you, do you see it on the level of those other movies? I do, honestly. It took me a, a little while to fully kind of get there. And I think the restoration helped a lot I have to let a movie breathe and grow and evolve. I have to be able to see that 
this thing, you know, it's like, because the first version of Apocalypse Now that I saw, um, I didn't get it at all. Heaven's Gate, when they released the, the, the restoration, and, I, and I, I don't remember why I was so compelled, other than just this nagging sense that the movie had left this impression on me when I first saw it, I was like, I need to, I need to own this. I need to buy this. And I bought it, and I watched it, and I watched it, and I watched it, and I, I just kept just doing this. I remember there was like a week in 2015 or something like that where I watched it like every day. Like I just couldn't stop watching Heaven's Gate. And something happens when, for me, I'm so wrapped up in a film and the things that it's telling me and the things that may have seemed like flaws beforehand, it all just becomes an essential part of its texture. So truly like the horrifying violence in the third, and I'm saying the third, it's more like the fifth act, except that movie doesn't really have acts. Just the, the, the screaming of people being shot and, and then blown up and run over by wagons and trampled by horses and having their legs broken and they're seeing their, their wives and family killed. Just these shrieking, horrible, traumatic responses to this, you know, very, very base and horrible and just like all the more horrible for how kind of primitively it's captured all of this violence. What struck me initially as this is too much, this movie cannot handle the weight of this, it's now so essential to the success of this film for me that to to build the most beautiful, you know, modernist cathedral of a first hour and change of this movie and then dismantle it in the most horrible religious crusade kind of a thing is to me the reason that the movie still stands as tall as it does, and it's why I keep going back to it, is as much as I love being completely seduced by its images of, you know, those beautiful mountains and the crystal lakes and the and the you know the pageantry and the dancing and the graduation at Harvard, which is really Oxford, all of that is so wonderful, but without this just this this horrible, violent reckoning it, at the end of it, you know, what are we seeing but a lot of very beautiful pictures? And that's fine, you know, Terrence Malick certainly still makes movies like that, but there is an element of darkness and all that, and I, but I love those movies. But there, you know, it, it sort of reminded me of the things that I, you know, need from this. You know, I need from art that reaches for the things that it does. Well, yeah, I think what's ironic about this is that what people were criticizing about this movie, at least the ones who saw, like, the original cut before the studio had him, you know, cut out over an hour from it, is about the length and the the immensity of the the resources poured into every single image and you know the budget like we were talking about and i think that is exactly what it works in this movie that if you a shorter version of this would not seem as immersive and and huge and that's exactly what i think is special about this the things that people would deem digressive that i can't believe that they cut out like much of the opening Harvard graduation, the, um, you know, the town getting together and roller skating and dancing along with this roller skating fiddler. I could have watched that stuff for hours. To me, that is exactly what is so good about this, that the seeing these hundreds of, of waltzers, you know, dancing around with the camera spinning around them. I mean, really that roller skating scene, I, I read early reviews that took delight in like piling onto it and mocking it. And I think that is exactly what this this lavishness is the appeal of it. And that's the the hugeness that's relatable to something like Apocalypse Now. And then he uses the contrast between that amazing, you know, cut from this lavish ceremony to Wyoming 20 years later and we're immediately just buried in the muck and the blood and and disemboweling animals 
that that's exactly the visceral level that this movie works on. And also, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I think people people let themselves get talked into thinking the only way to do this is on TV where you've got time to do it. And I just don't buy that at all, first of all, because nobody who has any visual sense works on television for very long. The idea of watching something like Heaven's Gate, that not only are you seeing a story unfold in exactly the speed that it needs to in order to make its point, the thing about Heaven's Gate is that it is this ecosystem. Um, you know, Apocalypse Now is very much like this. Also, Ermano Omi's film, uh, The Tree of Wooden Clogs, very, very similar, where it allows you to feel as though you are actually in this place at this time. And the more that it spends unemphatically showing you the conditions of living there, the more, to me, it invites you into that experience. And that is something that, to me, really only film can do. And a film is a living novel in this way. It can be, you know, and that shouldn't be the only aim of the filmmaker. I think it's good that we have people who are, you know, trying to do different things. But that is exactly the point, is that it can show you, you know, show you what life is, what life was, life looked like, what this person's understanding of life in Johnson County, Wyoming was. And the more time that you spend there, the more that the horror of the final act actually matters and means something. Because the weight of destruction of a way of life that you have come to understand, and if you're me or sympathetic to the movie in any way, you have come to appreciate. You know, those great, just every great little reverie, whether it's the the big guy in the in the whorehouse bed with his guitar singing along and the four women are flanked around and you know, draped over him like house cats or the you know the woman trying to make it to the outhouse and or or, or like you were saying the beautiful sequence of the roller skating rink at the heavens gate roller skating rink and you know or just the 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 riding around or or or, or Jim and Ella by uh, by the river and you know the sort of getting to know that quality of the air that you can feel how cold it is exactly how cold it is because you know you need a coat but you don't need a, as big a coat as something and it's just like it like this perfect translation of a state of mind as well as a time and a place. And so using a book, I'm sorry, using a movie to tell time in that way is, I think, something that is completely gone from American cinema. You know, even even stuff I like now doesn't seem to have the same appreciation for that because we have lost our attention span for these things, where if plot isn't happening, then the movie isn't working or the movie isn't whatever and I think plot is a disease. I think that the less of it we have, the better, you know, and that it is okay to get completely lost in, you know, the tangents of the lives of these people, because when you're making a movie like Heaven's Gate, it isn't a tangent because their lives are the story. Their lives are the plot. The destruction of their way of life is the plot, which means their way of life has to be the plot. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's especially important to try and watch it in one sitting, which I had no problem doing, uh, this being my first viewing. Um, this is, I believe this is the longest film that we've yet talked about on the podcast. Previously, it was Jean Dielman, um, which is another one that I think is very easy to sit through for, you know, three plus hours for similar reasons. And again, that's a, it, you know, really, it's like, and again, it's like watching three Netflix episodes. If someone's going to sit down and binge a show, you're probably going to spend more time on that anyways. But it's, yeah, it's the cumulative power of this. And just to talk a little bit about the actual um, story, you know, we do have a, a lot of great actors here like Christopher Walken, John Hurt, uh, Sam Watterson, Jeff Bridges, um, Isabel Huppert, who I've, I'd never seen her in anything that young either. It was almost like un unbelievable. And I'm sure that you've probably spent a lot of time on this since 
with your, you know, going through John Ford's filmography and seeing how early Westerns, you know, had a lot of common themes that tend to be kind of around, you know, civilizing the untamed country, bringing law and order, uh, the passing of eras, maybe a lot of like personal vendettas, you know, that kind of recur. And, you know, this movie, I think, falls very much into the Westerns of the 60s and 70s, where capitalism became the big, um, you know, evil influence. Like in, I brought up McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Once Upon a Time in the West, about these elites, you know, using their political influence and their power to claim property and to criminalize, you know, anyone, especially poor people who threaten their business interests. And it still even feels... Yeah, which obviously is super relevant for today. And especially seeing the way that they come marching in with the American flag and they turn it into this ominous thing that uh, I, I think that's very much where this this lands. And in some specific ways that those other movies don't necessarily explore as far as, um, you know, how people, even the poor people themselves at some point start fighting amongst themselves over property lines and, ones who want to turn in each other that were on this death list that, you know, that they put together. It's very of a piece with those, with, with those kind of Wests at the time. And I wasn't really sure what to expect when I went into this. Uh, and it was kind of just like ringing all, all these bells. I mean, not the least of which, because we have Vilma Sigmund uh, doing the cinematography who did that for McCabe and Mrs. Miller work with Spielberg, De Palma, Woody Allen, uh, really beautiful beautiful movie stunning stunning images i mean you know that's I, I i watched it again in in preparation for this you know i will take any excuse to watch this movie again it's streaming on the criterion channel now for people who are reading us talk about this and, and want to decide for themselves but um yeah money and um personal freedom basically become the two texts in westerns in this uh late 60s and 70s right? That's the whole thing is the split between the personal and the political. What horrible things can you do in the name of your own freedom? And at what point can you no longer do them if it endangers the guy next to you? And the Italians helped in this a lot because I think they didn't have the cultural connection to the West and the things that it actually, you know, stood for or whatever in the kind of, you know, Louis L'Amour stories or Elmer Leonard or, you know, the Ford Westerns even, you know. And so you're quite correct that the seventies is when people were finally starting to be open about this stuff because you could be, because, Vietnam War protesting and the Nixon backlash and, you know, the oil pipelines being, you know, constructed and, you know, just the countries being gutted for their resources. All this stuff was in the zeitgeist in a way that it hadn't really been allowed to up to that point. But also because of this, you've got, you know, second and third wave feminism. You've got um, civil rights. Every social issue gets put into the Western mold, kind of like, you know, in a waffle iron. And then out comes a Western that bears some resemblance to Westerns that we've seen before. Um, but is now sort of pointed in this new direction. You know, it, it, Blazing Saddles is a great example. You know, like that is a Western, but it's also this, you know, Hell's a Poppin' style meta comedy, but it's also very much a potent Richard Pryor written movie about race in America and race through movies. It's an essay about how race had been depicted in films and what Westerns had been up until this point and what they could no longer be, um, which is kind of hysterical because there's this cottage industry now of making these Westerns with like Trace Adkins in them that act as though there wasn't a 70s, that basically the only thing that people are allowed to do is like you can be a little more violent in your, you know, whatever and occasionally say a swear word, but they're still making Westerns as if it's 1956, except all the performances are worse. <laughs> yeah, and this is so... That's why I think these 70 Westerns, 70s Westerns in particular, like thematically are just so vital still today because they're almost like protest movies. And this 
I was thinking of so many things during Heaven's Gate, especially because it, it centers around this association of, I guess, landowners, business owners who uh, make this death list of just poor people who are who have been occasionally stealing cattle or horses and because they're starving and basically deputizing bounty hunters to just go out and kill them all because they're not actually, you know, all they're doing are misdemeanors or whatever. And the way that we have basically the government empowering this militia of people to, to go kill without consequence, I mean, is so obviously relevant to today, whether it's, you know, somebody standing their ground by shooting an unarmed teenager or cops executing people with impunity just for running away from them. Or, and by the time this, I don't know, this story will be a little bit old by the time this episode comes out, but deciding that a homeless person being disruptive means that you can go ahead and kill them and then not even get, uh, you know, arrested for it or be released right away. And it's so hard not to just think of all of that stuff with people having the law protecting them. Um, because we know who is on top and who it's actually protecting. So yeah, it's only appropriate then that, of course, the, that's the hopeless place that this movie ends in, that they do, you know, the bad guys do win, which is another kind of common, you know, thing from, uh, you know, way that movies were allowed to end in the 70s in general, that they really uh, rarely, you know, or very much less so were after that point. Yep, we see some of the bleakest endings in any of these these mainstream movies from the seventies that I like can hardly even believe sometimes. And, uh, and like you said, even it gets to the point where, all right, this town is resisting and it's turning into something that's a little too anarchic for us. So we're just going to change the law enough again to come in and we're going to arrest these surviving bounty hunters is with an arrest being just a way to get them out of there safely. (laughs) And, uh, which is another kind of brilliant twist of the knife in there. Um, I do think, that there's, we get this this just horrible, despairing shot uh, near the very end of you know what's left on the battlefield after they leave, where basically the whole town has died fighting for this, and to the point where even some of the survivors are just decide to kill themselves. And uh, I kept thinking, like, oh man, is it just going to go to black right here? <laughs> uh, but- <laughs> no, somehow it gets even worse. Yeah, somehow they managed to put to yeah put another uh hat on a hat on a hat on here yeah. uh and maybe i don't know if i might have preferred that it ended there because we do we kind of get two more scenes that each one is just more despairing than the last it's uh, true that i wonder was it really needed to keep going that far or is that just seeing this through to the further to the end when i first saw it i thought it was too much i absolutely thought it was too much i was like what are you ah! you know like i've just <laughs> been through the most horrible you know just seeing all these kindly lovely people that I had gotten to know over an hour. And so I was just like, just getting absolutely fucking murdered. <laughs> like it was too much, but now, you know, seeing it as this, you know, Joycey an essay about the, you know, the death March of American capitalism, of course it has to end this way. Of course, you know, you think you're going to finally, you know, you've done, you, 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 you were, you were going to leave, but you turned around and you did the right thing. Even then U S cavalry rides up to stop you from doing the right thing. And I'm like, okay, Sure, whatever. Completely boned. I'm going to go live my life. No, you can't even fucking do that. Nope. We're going to find you. We're going to kill you on your wife and your in her wedding dress. And you're going to finally start your life. You know, no, 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 fuck you. We're not going to do that too. And that ultimately, and then the only thing, the only way that he is then able to 
live, not to say, you know, thrive or, you know, anything. The only way that he can survive is to do the thing that Terry O'Quinn's character says to him. You know, he's just like, the thing I hate about you is you're rich, you pretend to be poor. So he stops pretending to be poor and owns up to his birthright and just goes out in this haze of of lucre. Just this, just this opioid fantasy of being so fucking rich that you can't even speak and barely move. And that is the death wish of every major fucking, you know, the, every Rockefeller and, you know, fucking Bezos in this country is that that is the thing that they see for themselves, not knowing that it's a fucking crypt. You know, that's the creepiest thing about it is that to see someone, and the thing is, and like, you know, Chimino, he, he again, this, the funny thing is that uh, Averill was hung. Averill was hung with those people. It was part of what started off the Johnson County War to begin with, is that he had gone out there to help those people, and he was hung as a cattle grazer. That was really what happened. Um, and so Chimino's, you know, perfect sort of revision of history is that this guy, this, you know, man who stood up for everything and did all the right things could be, you know, could be so beaten down by the horrors of capitalism that he becomes of it, that he, you know, basically becomes the living dead. He becomes this sort of, you know, Elaine Robegrier and figure, just this ghost haunting his own life. Um, and that's, you know, that that is, of course, the only, you know, the sort of the most conclusive way that you end that shit. It's almost like a Daniel Plainview kind of, uh, you know, alone in the in the mansion at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. As much as Giant and Treasure the Sierra Madre are influences on There Will Be Blood, Heaven's Gate is absolutely in that film's DNA. I mean, the look of that movie is pure fucking Vilma Sigmund. Um, you know, absolutely true. And that's, you know, that's, you know, to say anything less... Is to me dishonest, and it's funny because even Heaven's Gate, I, I, I would argue, is is a little more honest about the way that those things tend to go. Is that yeah, Daniel Plainview's derangement is certainly satisfying, but it's not the kind of thing that usually ends the way that that story does. I love the ending of There Will Be Blood. I think that movie's fucking wonderful. I just fucking love it. But um, it's you know even even to have. Daniel Plainview succumb to that thing is to me almost a little much because ultimately that doesn't happen. These guys don't get held accountable. You know what I mean? They're allowed to die in their beds. You know, that's, that's the thing. And you know, it's funny too. You're talking about the, like um, the, the, the way that you kind of weaponize people's fear against each other. The thing that I, I noticed this time around that I kind of missed, you know, a couple the, the, the first 4,000 times I watched this movie is they keep talking about, they keep labeling everyone in Johnson County criminals and anarchists. Yes. And I'm like, oh, fuck, Boy. there it is. That's what it is, is that they have found a label and they're using it to scare people. It's what they did with communism in the 50s. It's what we're doing mm -hmm. right now with, you know, woke, right? It's the same words you hear on Fox News. You still hear anarchists, yeah. criminals, not people. Criminals and anarchists. Absolutely. And I think that you can definitely, you can see how you can trace these values back to the very foundation of the country as depicted in Heaven's Gate, as recognized in the time that Heaven's Gate was made and all the other movies around then. And uh, yeah, it makes this movie still pack a punch today, whether or not you, uh, you know, it's certainly not subtle about things. And uh, it is a big investment, but it, these are the kind of big, you know, giant foundational issues that kind of deserve to be painted with the biggest possible brush and that's the that's the whole strength of this movie and it's it is you know again everything about it in real life ended darkly as well just to circle back out of that 44 million dollar budget it made like three and a half million dollars and was even blamed then for united artists i mean you know, the, what people 
the story around it is that it bankrupted the studio, which I don't think is exactly right. And I'm sure you can probably talk about that. It's not true. I know that yeah. at, shortly after I, United Artists, I think, was sold to MGM. And it just became more of a subsidiary as opposed to an independent studio. The thing that, about that that's so funny is that most most people our age will have grown up watching VHS tapes with the United Artists logo. Mm-hmm. They didn't, if anything, they got a fucking, they got, <laughs> all yeah. those people got so much fucking money. Everybody, you know, they've spiffed it up, if anything else. It went from, you know, I mean, admittedly, what it meant was that it wasn't in control of the people who had it beforehand, which means that you didn't get any more movies like Heaven's Gate. But, you know, you still have people who are like fucking, you know, crying a river over the fact that some CEOs didn't get their fucking bonus that year. It's like, I'm sorry, who are you? Like, whose side are you on? Do you like movies? Or are you an economist? Like, yeah, so... No, the myth of that was, again, just this thing where it's like, oh, yeah, no, they lost a shitload of money. It's like, yeah, but they were fine because they're, of course, they're fine. Tell me, <laughs> name me one studio executive who has gone hungry. I would love to meet him. I'd love to fucking talk to him. It just doesn't happen that way. So do you think then, I mean, again, like we said, it didn't actually bankrupt the studio. Uh, even Michael Cimino cont- made several movies after afterwards. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. like it destroyed his career. He still was able to do things. I'm sure it certainly didn't help, but... Uh, you know, and eventually over the years, then this this cut that I I believe was like two out like two and a half hours basically, which is what people had seen for a long time, and then finally got restored back to the current length, which is around three and a half hours. It's a little a little over three and a half, yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like they cut a lot of my favorites, you know, stuff that people would have deemed like you know not essential to the story or something. And uh, but that has been restored. You can watch it on the Criterion Channel right now, or at least at the time of this recording do you think that the movie has finally gotten its due or do you still think that there is an aspect of uh has has this reputation still is still preceding it at this point i think that we're at a place essentially where most failures from before i don't know 2007 that we have lost the grip, I mean, you know, the, the, again, it's sort of like the job of the film critic has so completely changed from what it used to be when Heaven's Gate was new. The job of the people who, you know, whose job it was to make sure that you knew about failures. Those people have kind of lost their grip on on culture. And now there is simply too much fucking media to keep track coherently of a movie's reputation. So, you know, I talk about this with, uh, like, uh, Doing the Unloved, which this was, I think, like, the 13th one of these that I did. I did this as a double feature with Ridley Scott's The Counselor, where now, really, all you're up against is not some blanket dismissal of the thing, which was a problem for a very long time. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I, w- I would argue that until, until tw- uh, Chimino's death, probably, is what finally was sort of the thing that put it over the edge, is, is that you're up against the opinion of the guy that you run into at a bar, right? There is no... You know, I I think we are thankfully given over less and less to group think about the reputation of works of art in the film landscape than we used to be. Um, Partly, I think it's because a lot of this stuff gets memory hold. Um, People don't have uh, the room to look into this stuff anymore and they don't have the attention span and they don't have the curiosity. And so it's not that the movie is is, is thought of as a failure. It's that it's not thought of at all, you know. And I think that there are at this point enough people who love the movie and have given it a second chance and really understood it for what it was initially supposed to be and or still always loved it and just sort of maintained that thing like Richard Brody, um, that there isn't a consensus on it anymore. Um, I think it's just one of those things that you people decide for themselves. And that's kind of the exciting thing is that I know, you know, precious few people who are Gen Zers who are like hardcore film people. 
Um, and it's been really heartening to basically see them approach movies and not have all the fucking baggage that I did because I came of age at the era where Entertainment Weekly was still whatever and Variety and all this shit like that was the last, you know, I got to see all that culture basically die. Which on the one hand was kind of sad because, you know, it was it, there was a sort of an air of whatever, you know, authority to all that stuff. But at the same time, it's great because now I don't have to listen to people tell me that the same, you know, whatever, the same three flops are the worst films ever made. And, you know, uh, Brian De Palma and Bonfire of the Vanities. It's like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. That's done. Um, you know, nobody nobody remembers any of that shit. You know, people who did, they don't want to talk. They don't want to argue with you about it. They have their opinions from when they were 20 and they've kept them intact. And that's how it is. You know, it's very rare that people of that generation are going back to revise things because part of what made their, you know, it was like Pauline Kale used to talk about the fact that she would never watch a movie twice. I don't know that I believe that, but I also know that that's just like, what are you talking about? You didn't watch anything else for pleasure? Like, fucking, right. <laughs> come on, Pauline. You're supposed to love this shit. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great point that you make too, that this, I would call it almost like the Babylon era because that, you know, is a movie that um, immediately it had people who, thought it was terrible and then the reclaiming it as a as a misunderstood masterpiece was happening simultaneously along with that and really if there wasn't some sort of solid thing you could concretely point to like it didn't make money in the theaters which even that now is becoming a thing that's becoming nebulous about how much money a movie makes whether you're talking about worldwide or maybe it's gone straight to streaming so you can't really just uniformly paint something as a disaster and because you're it doesn't even matter how bad the movie is now there's people are are the people who love it are going to be just as loud as everybody else now well you know the thing that i see you know and i i i, I used to be a little more aggressive about this stuff back when i had the energy for it but you know as a 34 year old i'm very tired <laughs> um <laughs> but I see shit all the time where this stuff gets in, like into my Twitter feed or whatever, where it's people like everybody was like too hard on this movie, and it's like fucking Spider Man or some shit. Right. It's like, are you serious? Like, is this this is all you do people talk about? Like, what? Like, is it not enough to have completely dominated the conversation? You also need all this respect. And the thing is, you're right. You know, and the Babylon thing is that there are going to be people who love that movie, and there are still people who love that movie. I know a lot of people who are like, you know, supposedly classic movie heads who are like, oh yeah, but it's about the 20s. It isn't that great. I was like, fucking no, that's not enough. Right. <laughs> Fuck off, God. You know, like yeah, no, I also love the 20s. I'll go watch a fucking von Stroheim film. Thank you. I don't need to watch some bizarro, pale ass imitation of some shit that didn't happen. Like it's so fucking bizarre. It becomes more and more difficult to choose things for the unloved because. Um, everything kind of fails now, you know, almost nothing makes it to theaters. And then you've got things that are going on to Hulu and people talk about them for a month, you know, and then they never talk about them again. But other than that, I don't know. I have no fucking idea what the people's response to anything is. I don't know where people are talking about movies anymore because, you know, it used to be fairly transparent. It was people had blogs and they went on social media and all that stuff. But I got very, very agoraphobic about social media, so I try not to like let the millions of opinions into my life anymore because it was too much. It's like Kate Blanchett at the end of Crystal Skull, like <laughs> just melting my brain out of my head. Um, and so, yeah, it's extremely difficult to kind of tell what things are and are not cultural forces, except when you see them recur throughout social media. You know, like a movie that I don't even really have much affection for, something like Knives Out. That's hung around, you know, people still talk about that and they make that into memes and they joke about it. They made a sequel and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's that movie has proved its sort of cultural metal at this point by being something that people still talk about. Yeah. And I mean, I, for one, is someone who sometimes is afraid that we go too far in the other direction where every 
even just genuinely bad movies, uh, you know, all have their champions behind them as far as reclaiming them to kind of blur the lines. And so many times I am disappointed when it's like, no, actually, uh, Southland Tales is great. Or, you know, I don't know where you lay on any of those. That's just my go-to example. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm not so sure about that. But to sit down with Heaven's Gate, you know, with the hat to end to, to see that really this is actually a good movie and that there really is something there. And it really all the conversation around it has just been preposterous is just, uh, yeah, really refreshing for me to see something that really does deserve that reevaluation. And I want to thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about this on the podcast and to spread that word about it. Um, so this was, uh, yeah, a, a great Great success in my mind. And so I want to thank you for being here, for uh, having so much to say about that and the you know lineage leading up to it. I, I want to make sure that um, we get the word out about your book. And where is there a particular place that they need to get it from online? Uh, yes, withanxbooks.com, W-I-T-H-A-N-X-B-O-O-K-S.com, with an X. John's last name is Nix, and so it is with an X books. That is where you can go to pick up But God Made Him a Poet, uh, watching John Ford in the 21st century. Now, can they get the Toby Hooper book in the same place? or uh, No, that is available uh, most online retailers. You can get it at like barnesandnoble.com or uh, from miniverpress.com, which is the, the lovely people who put this out. My friend Nell Minow um, was the publisher on this one. either, But it's also available on Amazon. I know they're evil, but you can get it there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... Uh, now, also, um, my friend Matt Zollersites runs a, a website. I think it's shopmzs.world or something like that. Um, but Matt Zollersites bookstore. He sells signed copies of books. I used to work for the for the bookstore for a long time. Um, so I think he may have copies of the Hooper book. But if not, uh, I'll try to get him some more. And I'm going to get him some signed copies of the Ford book, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. We shall see. But um, just a good resource for film books in general. So keep that in your, in your uh, bookmarks. We always try to link to our, our guests' projects in the episode description. I think Anchor might have a character limit, so we, we probably <laughs> might not be able to fit all of Scott's links in there, but we'll definitely uh, we'll put all the stuff he's talked about so far uh, in the description so you can find it easily. Yeah, and do, is there anything else that you want to uh, plug or current things going on? I know you got a Patreon going on. Yeah, the Patreon's probably the thing to, to say. Patreon.com slash honorszombie. Um, that's where uh, I so every week, new video essay, two new written pieces, one flashback piece. I'm the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> um, uh, I do the occasional written piece for websites like The Spool um, every month. Of course, The Unloved on RogerEbert.com. We are approaching the 10th anniversary this December of The Unloved. Um, uh, that's my, my my pride and joy, my baby. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I would say social media, but I'm on private because uh, uh, <laughs> high school classmate went nuts. And has been sending me death threats. So, oh no, uh, yeah, that was fun. And we'll have him on the next episode to talk. Of about course, our- <laughs> bring him around. <laughs> bring him around. That's actually the real reason Seth couldn't be on this episode. He was, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Restraining order. Yeah, of course. You're not the first. You're not the first guest. <laughs> Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti. Hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krauss. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. 
You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.